What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. The work of female artists has been historically undervalued, but why? Art history itself has been a huge problem. Art history has done a a shocking amount of damage to our understanding of female artists. The Royal Academy of Arts in London, one of the most major museums in the world, they've still never had an exhibition by a woman artist in their main space. Next year will be the first with Marina Abramovich, but it's taken over 250 years. I mean, how many women artists did you know? Because when I was 21 setting up that account, I probably couldn't have named more than 20. And that's an art history student. Prices for art by female artists has consistently been considerably lower than for male artists. For example, the YBA group of artists who came to prominence in London in the 1990s, probably the two key names that most people would connect with that group are Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin. And Tracy Emin's top price ever achieved at auction is around £2.5 million, while Damien Hurst is £9.6 million. In this latest episode in the Futureverse series from Intelligence Squared and Ytree, we set out to explore how this historic gender imbalance came about, what it means, and whether it's changing. Search Futureverse on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and join us as we ask, is the future of art female? Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, the New York Times journalist Elizabeth Williamson joins author and filmmaker John Ronson to delve into the dark world of conspiracies and examine one of America's most prominent and controversial theorists, Alex Jones. Research shows that up to one in five Americans believes that every high-profile mass shooting is staged by the government. Now, conspiracy theories are not a new phenomenon in America, but what has changed in the past decade is the rate at which these ideas are spreading. In her new book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, Elizabeth Williamson chronicles the rise of falsehoods in America and the figures who have trumpeted them. In this episode, she joins John Ronson, who has been deeply investigating the world of conspiracy for three decades. 
Together, they explore how America ended up in a battle for truth and who has been at the centre of the fight. The episode was recorded just last week, while Alex Jones' defamation trial in Connecticut is ongoing. Let's join Elizabeth and John now with more. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm John Ronson. On the 14th of December 2012, 20 young children and six teachers lost their lives in the Sandy Hook school shooting. It remains one of the worst school shootings in American history. But as the horror unfolded that day, what nobody anticipated was the immense number of conspiracy theories which would be tied to the day. Uh, from claims that it was a false flag operation organised by the government to an attack on Second Amendment rights. These claims would plague the families of the victims for the next 10 years. One of the loudest platforms to spread conspiracy theories about Sandy Hook was Alex Jones's Infowars. Alex Jones is an American conspiracy theorist and radio talk show host. Uh, my guest Elizabeth and I, the thing we have in common is that both of our lives are at this stage entwined in Alex Jones's life. This is something that we'll talk about. For years, the Alex Jones show questioned if the massacre had happened at all, and they platformed anyone on with a new hypothesis about what really happened or didn't happen. And after years of this, Alex Jones was recently sued in Texas for defamation. He was ordered to pay $4.1 million in compensatory damages and $45.2 million in punitive damages to the parents of Jesse Lewis, who died in the school shooting. Alex Jones is now sitting his second trial in Connecticut, where the families of eight Sandy Hook victims are suing him for defamation. I'm joined from Connecticut by Elizabeth Williamson, who's been reporting from Alex Jones's trials for the New York Times, and she's the author of the superb book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Elizabeth, hello. Hello, John. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Fine, thank you. That's good. Well, why don't we start with how things are right now? So this is Alex's second. I call him Alex because I've I've been reporting on him for 30 years. And it's just weird. At what point do you do you switch to Jones? <laughs> so I'm still, like, <laughs> I'm still just calling him Alex because that's what I called him when we were both in our 20s. Yes, you, you have a far longer history with him than I do. I will say. Sure. But I think at this stage, he's probably equal, feels equal animus towards the two of us. So why don't you paint the pictures? This is Alex's second trial. He's been, he's very beleaguered. He's already had $45 million settlement against him. Whether or not he'll ever actually have to pay that amount, I think is, is, is another matter. And now he's in a second trial in Connecticut and he kind of lost it on Friday. So why don't we start with what happened on, on Friday? You were right there, right? Yes. Yes. So Actually, it was on Thursday. He was supposed to testify again on Friday, and his lawyer withdrew him from the fray, so to speak. So he will be testifying again this week on Wednesday. That's by agreement with both sides. And uh, what his lawyer said in the courtroom was that um, this was designed in part to lower the temperature um, in the room because things did get unbelievably heated on Thursday. There are eight plaintiffs, eight victims' families in this particular lawsuit and a first responder who was also implicated in these false claims. And the most direct link is uh, between Alex Jones and Robbie Parker, whose daughter Emily died in the shooting. And Jones had 
For years, mocked Robbie Parker, who gave a press conference the night after the shooting in which he spoke about his daughter and thanked people for their messages of condolences. He also remarkably expressed compassion for the gunman and his family. And Jones took this broadcast because as Robbie stepped to the microphone, he had not realized that there would be a sea of cameras there instead of just a solitary reporter and cameraman. And he gave a kind of nervous laugh before then launching into what was a very emotional press conference. And Jones, you know, seized on that split second and called him an actor for years. So the thing that set him off, that's a long way of saying, the thing that set him off in the in the courtroom was the playing of that news conference and the family's lawyer saying, you put a target on Robbie Parker's back for years with your mocking of him as well as these other families. And they were all sitting in the courtroom because the tape had just been played. They were all very emotional. And he was absolutely expressionless. He just looked at them and said, no, I didn't. And then after that, you know, there was a kind of outburst from the lawyer and he said, I'm done apologizing. And then followed it up with, is this a struggle session? Are we in China? I had to look that phrase up. For all of the for all of like the, the, the bad things about Alex, the one thing you can give him is his oratory skills, I would say. And I actually had never heard the phrase struggle session. So I, I went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole as a result. It's basically a kind of Maoist thing where, where where somebody would like be put in a room and then like yelled at by people in a sort of re-education setting, which obviously is not what was happening in court in Connecticut on Thursday. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was really, I mean, we can laugh now. And as you say, you know, it's a lot of his references are so they're so obscure, but they're a kind of dog whistle to his audience because he says that a lot on his show. Um, and so his lawyer picked up on the same theme and, and said the exact same thing. He was shouting objection, objection. His lawyer is performing for an audience of one, which is Alex Jones. But it was um, absolute chaos. At one point, his, his lawyer was shouting objection over things that Alex himself was saying, which you could legitimately object to what he was saying, but that was not his lawyer's purpose. So it really, things really went seriously off the rails. Right. And it felt for a minute like the judge, I don't know, I mean, watching the clip, it may have felt different when you were sitting in court, but it it just it felt chaotic for a moment in a way that trials don't usually go, right? It felt like it just went yes. off the rails and she managed to, to get it back after, you know, but, but it was a... It was. It must. Have, I mean, it must have been an awful moment for the parents sitting in court. It actually was. You know, you can say the sort of chaotic scene is sort of typical of the chaos that that Jones tends to bring with him. You know, when he confronts people or is in any kind of a public setting, right? I mean, you know better than I. That's what happens. But the shame of it is sitting behind those families because they carry that burden of their loss with them wherever they go and just to hear their their children's and loved ones' names mentioned in court makes some of them break down. Just to hear the mention of their child's name. You know, they have wanted to confront him for years over this in a courtroom, but to sit there and, um, and have him basically again, you know, it felt like he was once again mocking their grief and making it all about him. Using that not only further an ideology, but to play to the gallery, to posturize in a 
narcissistic manner. It's just, it's, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Yeah. And, and the lawyer for the families pointed that out. You know, he was saying, oh, oh, I see what you're doing now, Alex. You're making a clip for your show. You know, he was definitely, as you said, playing to the gallery. Unfortunately, in the gallery is the jury. And some of them looked horrified. Yeah. He does seem to he does seem to have kind of given up hope of getting small fines. It seems like he's succumbed to knowing that they're gonna hit him with with high fines. Did you think that's true? It, at his last trial in Austin a few weeks ago, I mean it was it was astonishing. He was he was calling them like simple people on his show. Yeah, he didn't make the slightest effort to try to win them over. Yes, that was, yeah, the parents of Jesse Lewis, uh, a boy who died at Sandy Hook, and um, his father's name is Neil Heslin. And Jones on his show said he was slow um, and easily manipulated by these deep state lawyers that the that he's convinced the families have. You know, this is all another conspiracy, of course. And as you say, he thinks that, you know, they're coming for him. So he's blowing up in public and on his show and saying, I'm finished apologizing and I'm, this is just a, a, a plot to get me by, you know, Democrats and my deep state enemies. So what, what, what kind of numbers are we talking about here, Elizabeth? Like how many people in America believe that Sandy Hook was a false flag? And how did they come to believe that? Was it from Alex or was it from like a whole firmament of, of conspiracists? So I guess you'd have to say that he is among the biggest megaphones for the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory, which is, of course, why, you know, we tend to focus on him and the families have focused on him in suing him because they consider him to be the kind of er source of this conspiracy theory. But there were many others who created the content that he put on his show. And those people's names have come up in court. People like Wolfgang Halbig, a kind of failed um, you know, state cop and educator who came up with, um, you know, just inundated Newtown where the crime occurred with freedom of information requests, trying to get, you know, information about a crime to try and prove that the shooting didn't happen. Many, many other people who, you know, made appearances on Jones's show. But the impact of all of this is that there was that ferment after the shooting. There was a combination of people who just couldn't find it in themselves to believe that 20 children and six educators had died this way. And those people kind of fell out pretty quickly. But shortly after the shooting, there was a survey done by Fairleigh Dickinson University in which a quarter of Americans said that Sandy Hook was either definitely or possibly staged. And to this day, every high profile mass shooting, and I think Sandy Hook was undeniably the beginning of this phenomenon, the kind of source of this, one fifth of Americans believe that every high profile mass shooting is staged by the government. So that gives you an idea of the millions and millions of people who question official narratives of all kinds in this country, but particularly around mass shootings. And that's kind of related to the fight over the Second Amendment um, and, you know, gun control and gun policy in this country as well. It's so hard to believe that Sandy Hook was a false flag. There's, it's, it's, why do you think so many people have come to believe it? Do, do they believe it because they're just born magical thinkers and it's just another way of being like into wellness or and maybe not wellness is the best example, but religion. Or do they see it as a metaphor? 
there's a kind of fervor that's attached itself to this belief that I think is a sort of quasi-religious thing. I talk about in the book, you know, because the book really discusses Sandy Hook not as the shooting, but this aftermath and follows this continuum, you know, from Sandy Hook to Pizzagate, which Alex Jones was very involved in too, to coronavirus myths, to the, the great replacement myth that drove the riot in Charlottesville, um, to the 2020 election lie. Yeah. And it finally concludes with the attack on the Capitol because that's where people are willing to defend their false beliefs with confrontation and violence. And that's where the continuum and the sort of trajectory that we've seen. But I think, you know, in talking with the individual people who believe this and many other theories, because they tend to attach themselves to all of these, it has to do with, similar to Jones, there is a certain level of narcissism there. They want to be the possessors of superior knowledge. But most most important, what drives people is the sense of group identification, that when you try to inject truth into this narrative, they react as a unit, almost as if you know, you're know you threatening the cohesion of their group. They've been able to reinvent themselves around this. You know, People who are, I, I profile a, um, a woman who has a house cleaning business in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who is now, you know, calls herself a journalist and a citizen investigator and, you know, a guy with a moving business down in Florida, who's now the founder of Independent Media Solidarity. People have reinvented themselves around this. They have created brand new roles for themselves. They've elevated themselves and they found a whole group. I mean, conspiracy theorists used to be a lot more isolated than they are now, thanks to social media. And they are really reluctant to have truth and therefore, you know, a kind of divisive force intrude on that, that sense of identification that they've found. Mm. And in terms of the impact this has on the, on the IRL lives of the parents, are the parents ever like approached by them on the street or anything terrible like that? Yes. Actually, um, we talked earlier about Robbie Parker, whose daughter Emily died at Sandy Hook. In 2016, and I, I trace this in the book, he was on the street in Seattle. They were attending an event at which you know their daughter would be recognized and work that was being done, sort of therapeutic art that was being done um, in the community. He had parked the car. He had dropped his family as two uh, surviving daughters, dropped them at the hotel was walking back to the hotel. Man came up to him on the street. He said, didn't you lose someone at Sandy Hook? And recognized him all those years later, four years later, thousands of miles from Newtown and started spewing this venom at him. You liar, you piece of shit. How much money did you make? And badgered him for blocks. Lenny Posner, who really is a pioneer in the fight against these conspiracy theorists, has had to move a dozen times because they publish his home address online. People have confronted him. A woman was jailed for making death threats against him. You know, it's serious business and people react when you challenge them. I mean, his work to challenge these conspiracy theorists has really put him in the crosshairs because, again, he's not just challenging something that they say they believe, he's sort of challenging the life that they've built around believing in these theories and the social world that they have created for themselves. I mean, the cognitive dissonance, my God, like it's going to be very hard for them to come to a different way of, of seeing things uh, because the amount of guilt, like, my God, if they start to think we're wrong and we just, we've been harassing the parents of children killed in school shootings, the guilt 
least alone could prevent them from yeah. seeing that. I mean, this woman uh, from Tulsa, Kelly Watt, I really delved deeply into her life because she has a lot of trauma in her own background, which is something that I found in a number of these, these conspiracy theorists. But I talked with her daughter for six straight hours and she, you know, just described this incredibly traumatic upbringing and growing up, but that, you know, part of the reason that there was so much trauma in the family's life is that the mom was attaching herself to, at that time in the 90s, a conspiracy theory that liberals from the Department of Education were infiltrating the public school system. So, you know, on and on down every rabbit hole. But, you know, she talked about how She's a mother, she's a grandmother, and yet she has been tormenting, like sending personal messages to these family members saying, dig up your child and prove to the world you lost your son. How could you actually, you almost have to continue to grab onto this theory because you're right, you would otherwise be faced with the idea that for 10 years you have been hounding the families of murdered first graders and educators. Yeah. Not only was Lady Posner in, in their crosshairs, but so were you and and me to a, to a lesser extent. Uh, I, I'm going to ask you whether it's impacted you at all, whether you've had people yelling at you. It hasn't happened to me very much. The one really memorable time it happened was I was sort of sneaking around watching Alex and Roger Stone broadcast from the Republican convention in 2016. And I snuck into their oh, studio. That was a great piece. <laughs> I snuck into their live studio in a sort of makeshift Airbnb. And there was a guy that I didn't put this in the piece, actually. I don't know why not. But there was one guy, everybody was just sort of left leaving me alone. But there was one guy in that room just staring hatred at me, like giving me looks as if to say, I know who you are and I hate you. And I was feeling a little like, yeah, okay, I need to be wary of this guy. And I and I watched him go up to Alex and whisper something and look at me. And Alex went, no, no, he's fine. He's fine. Don't worry. So the guy sort of reluctantly backed off. And then I recognized him again a couple of years later because his, he's, his name is Joe Biggs and he's now in jail for being one of the ringleaders of January the 6th. He's one of the heads. Right, in the Proud Boys. Yeah, one of the heads of the Proud Boys. So he's, you know, a very serious figure. He was right there with Alex and Roger Stone. He was much more hostile towards me than anybody else was there. And he's now in, in jail, awaiting trial for being one of the, the ringleaders. So what about you? Have you had people attacking you? Has Alex attacked you? Yeah, yeah. He's um, actually spent the weekend doing that because um, I did my interpretation on Twitter of, you know, his postponement of his, you know, second part of his testimony as, you know, he's done so much damage to his case that it would be better to give the jurors a rest. So I wrongly said that his lawyer had said that in court. His lawyer didn't say that in so many words. That was not a direct quote from his lawyer. So as we do in real journalism, I corrected that and took that tweet down. That, of course, has given them an opening to run through. So he is from the beginning of this, you know, my interest in this case. And since the book came out, you know, mentioned me on his show, but he'll often just say the New York Times because that's a more handy whipping boy um, and a kind of traditional enemy for for himself and his followers, but he's been mentioning me now by name. So I've noticed a little bit more hate on social media, but again, I, I always compare it to what the families have endured. And so I just, you know, it's, it's re relatively, absolutely minor. And I also attribute it to the fact that 
people who are listening to Alex Jones are listening to a completely different news, quote unquote, news ecosystem. That's part of the problem. That's part of where we got where we are, that you're, you don't have a lot of cross-fertilization. You know, people don't watch Fox and MSNBC. They don't, you know, read the New York Times and go to the Epoch News or the Epoch Times or whatever it's called. People aren't reading what I write um, in Alex Jones's world. And so maybe that's been helpful in that regard. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com that's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. So there's two ways this could go. Either there's various caps in different states, right? So the jury could award the families $50 million, but all Alex will have to pay in the end is a, is a couple of million. And then his you know, infowars will just go on, pretty much unencumbered. Or somehow this really does impact him and potentially even finishes him. Can you say which of those two things seems more likely to unfold? <laughs> you correctly point out, John, that in Texas, there are pretty strict caps on damage awards. So the punitive damages, so that award was nearly $50 million, as you said. Under Texas law, 
the parents are actually only entitled to $750,000 each. So again, yeah, you're right. It will probably be something more in the realm of $5 million that he might eventually have to pay there. It's a different story in Connecticut. Other than the, you know, the sort of atmospherics of it, you know, it's the state where the shooting occurred. It is the families of eight victims, not one. But there's also a thing. So he was defaulted in all four of the defamation lawsuits that the Sandy Hook families brought against him. That happened late last year because he just refused to comply with discovery in the run-up to trial. He wasn't submitting business records and testimony and things that were ordered by the courts. And so after four years of this, he lost all four cases by default. That led to three trials for damages, of which this is the second. So in this particular case, he was already found liable for violating something without getting too deep in the weeds, the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act, which basically means you can't use lies to sell products. So he's already liable for that. So when one violates that act, there is no cap on punitive damages. So this jury could assess him a pretty ruinous amount of money in a verdict. So I think this is one of the reasons he is sounding so unhinged. Hmm. So this really could be the like the end game for Alex, this particular trial. This particular trial is, um, is absolutely pivotal for him. And it comes against the backdrop of another thing that happened actually just you know, a day before he was in the witness stand. And that's that a judge in Houston where he has his bankruptcy case. So he has really been striving to avoid this trial in particular for the reasons we're talking about. And what has happened now is that he declared in the run-up to this, actually while the, the first case was ongoing, he declared bankruptcy. So he said, you know, his parent company is bankrupt because it owes $54 million to another entity, which it turns out that entity is actually owned by Alex Jones and his parents. So it's a really convoluted thing. And earlier in the week, um, you know, last week when he testified, this judge put aside, he, he dismissed Alex Jones's lawyer in the case and his handpicked chief restructuring officer saying that they were they had a conflict of interest because they already knew about Infowars. They had already had dealings with the business. Um, he cast a lot of doubt on how forthcoming free speech systems, his parent company and Jones himself were being. He cited uh, a lack of candor and a lack of transparency. He has strengthened the powers of an independent overseer. So he's really sort of gutting Alex Jones's bankruptcy proceeding and forcing some really significant level of additional oversight, outside oversight over Alex Jones's business. So you know better than I how that would be playing with Alex Jones. Losing control over InfoWars management would be like, ah. And one of the things that he pointed out in particular was that Alex Jones had taken out of InfoWars $80,000 for quote unquote, security for his trip to Connecticut for this trial. And he travels around with a cadre of bodyguards. He's staying in a very posh Airbnb outside Waterbury where the trial's being held. How posh is the, is the Airbnb? Is it like a kind of mansion? Tennis courts and a swimming pool. It's a, it's a pretty nice Airbnb. Yeah, it's a mansion. And he flew here to Connecticut by chartered jet. So 
all of which raises eyebrows when one's claiming that they're bankrupt. So that too seems to be curtains down. So it's really quite a moment. Wow. I I didn't realize. It's funny. We're so used to powerful narcissists getting away with it with no consequences in America uh, over the last, you know, five or six years. It's kind of, it's kind of astonishing, you know, that actually one may be impacted. It is. And it's so, you know, that's, it's so great that you point that out because I think about that a lot. You know, there's a lot that's Trumpian about this situation and, you know, and it also occurs at, at, um, against the backdrop of um, the former president also ha- getting some comeuppance uh, lately. So it's it's really fascinating. It's kind of meta version of what's happening in our national politics. It is. It's, I guess it's the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise is catching up finally. Wow. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. Like what? Because as I said in the introduction, you know, we have Alex Jones in, in common. We've now both written books that heavily feature him. Uh, I, I was there right at the very beginning of his career. We, we just sort of kind of spotted him as a person who was clearly on the up and was going to become a big voice in the conspiracy world. So I went and had a couple of adventures with him in my mid-20s. And then cut to years later and, and you know, you became just as engrossed in him. Do you want to talk about, like, what brought you into it? What Was it the shooting? Was it his response to the shooting? Like, what, what first triggered you to want to dive into this? Sure. Um, and yes, your book, Them in particular, really informed what, you know, my research. And I'm so grateful. I just ran across your name so many times in studying him. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I, I realized, like, um, at, this, at the time that I was hanging out with Alex Jones, we snuck into the secret club called Bohemian Grove, and Alex, like, wildly exaggerated what we saw there. What we actually saw was a mock human sacrifice. Uh, <laughs> sort of weird ritual where it happened in my face. <laughs> to me, that would be, that suffices, right, in storytelling, but, but not for Alex. Alex wanted to portray it as, a, as an actual human sacrifice, or possibly an actual human sacrifice. So at the time, um, I mean, it's an incredible story, which I won't count now but it's uh, anyone can find it it's in my book them uh but at, at the time i went on c-span and they they interviewed me about them and and they asked about alex jones so at the time nobody had heard of alex jones so the question was like you know who is alex jones and luckily and i'd go back to that moment i'm sitting in the studio where i say basically i effectively say you know he wildly exaggerated what we saw at bohemian grove you know, and I explained, you know, that he was kind of full of shit when it came to this and that. And I'm just so pleased that I had the presence of mind, you know, 25 years ago to to say that, to have that on the record. Because it just, I don't know, I just think it, it puts a pin in that moment. Uh, whereas otherwise it could have just blossomed into yet another, we don't know what's true, we don't know what's not true. Yes, exactly. So what was it with you? What what um, what brought you into this? So it was very much about the families. So from the beginning, when they first filed the suit, I think the day after the first suit to be filed was um, two lawsuits that are now part of the damages trials in Texas by um, Lenny Posner and Veronique De La Rosa, whose son Noah Posner is the youngest Sandy Hook victim, Scarlett Lewis and Neil Heslin, whose son Jesse Lewis, I mentioned them earlier, Jesse Lewis died in the shooting as well. How old was Noah Posner? Uh, Both boys were six, six years old. So um, they filed that suit in mid-2018. And 
I went to my editor and we were at that moment kind of living through that sort of what everyone was calling then the post-truth era. You know, this idea of Kellyanne Conway, advisor to President Trump, talking about alternative facts. And, you know, we were in this moment that, you know, was rapidly becoming unrecognizable, where truth was a malleable thing as opposed to an objective standard. Science was like a left-wing affectation and so on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which began with climate and rapidly moved on to the pandemic. But that, you know, obviously before the pandemic, but it was it was in that moment where we were, you know, as a country kind of grappling with, oh, no, this is something we haven't really seen before in our politics. Politicians spin, but they don't out and out lie and repeat it constantly and expect everyone to believe it. And moreover, a significant amount of people are willing to to embrace these falsehoods for the sake of political fealty or or loyalty or tribalism or what have you. So I was saying, this is going to be a really interesting test of what I thought at the time would be the First Amendment. Just does freedom of speech actually protect these dangerous falsehoods that travel so rapidly via social media and really impact the lives of vulnerable people like this? Does the First Amendment actually protect that? And what's the role of social media in all of this? Because they were definitely the vehicle by which this spread. So my editor, being brilliant, if she's listening, um, was saying, actually, yeah, why don't you go down to Texas and see what this is all about? So I went down there, but I had never really heard much about Alex Jones until 2015 when President Trump, then candidate Trump, um, came on his show in December of 2015. We should just rest for a moment on that moment because uh, it was so extraordinary because Alex, you know, he was always very much a, you know, a figure on, on, on the show. I remember I went to a militia meeting with, with him at one point. Uh, it was at David Koresh's church. And there's a moment when one of the militia guys is introducing Alex. He's going to give a speech. And he says, you know, this guy is 26 years old. Uh, by the time he gets to 36, he's going to be the youngest president of the United States. And I thought everyone like cheered. And I remember thinking, you know, for Alex Jones to become the youngest president of the United States, an awful lot will have to go wrong uh, in society. <laughs> and then cut to 2015, and, you know, the president-to-be is on Alex's show saying, you know, what a great reputation Alex has and and how Trump, I won't let you down, Alex. And and I just thought, my God, you know, and things have spiraled. Yes. Yeah. So a lot did have to go wrong and did. I did, yeah. I mean, un <laughs> unprecedented. I was at the gym when it happened and I was watching it live at the gym and I, I practically fell off the elliptical. Of all the people I'd spent time with over the, over the last 30 years, if you'd said, which one would you want to have the ear of the president to be? I wouldn't have said Alex. So anyway, going back to the to the families, I think... Early on, people didn't really realize how much InfoWars was going on about Sandy Hook. Alex would say, I mentioned it three times. You know, I've heard him say that too. I mentioned it three times. But you discovered a, like a, a different story. Yes. Um, I mean, one of the, the sort of unforeseen consequences of him being deplatformed in 2018, around the time that these lawsuits were filed, was that a lot of this material disappeared from social media. So it took the efforts of a lot of people, people who had actually been part of Lenny Posner's um, network of volunteers who were getting this material taken down for years. 
they had retained a lot of these videos and they became a source in the lawsuits. So what Alex Jones likes to say, as he point out, is that he hasn't spoken about this a lot. I, the other day he was holding forth in front of the courthouse and saying, 23 minutes total, 23 minutes total. Well, I don't know where he's getting that, just like you don't know where a lot of things he says are coming from. But what really did happen was that they were not forthcoming in giving any records or, or you know, videotape or anything that they had. It was hard to find this material because so much of it had disappeared from the Internet. But they did a pretty credible job of showing in court um, how many times and the types of things he was saying. There will never be a full record. But it was quite a bit. I mean, do you think we're talking like, a, like I don't know, I, I, maybe this is the wrong question to ask, but like a hundred times, 50 times? I mean, do, do you know kind of just roughly how many times he, you know, Sandy Hook was brought up? I hesitate to estimate. I mean, the big thing that, um, that they are proving in court is through the records that they do have, they can show that when he did talk about it, he had a real surge in his audience and that would inspire him to speak about it more because of course, big audience means sales of the products that, you know, the, the sort of diet supplements and doomsday prepper merchandise that he sells his, his audience by playing on these fears. Male vitality pills and so on. Spe speaking about Alex's fortune, one thing that came out of the last trial in Texas that really surprised me was when he was deplatformed, I assumed that that really would have an impact on his money making. Uh, he went off on a little rant against me soon after he was deplatformed. And the only reason why I know is because I got like one email about it. And I remember thinking, well, if he'd gone on this rant before he was deplatformed, I'd have been like, you know, inundated with his fans yelling at me. And, but instead I got one email. So I just kind of assumed from that, that, you know, his, his empire had taken a real hit when he'd been deplatformed, but it came out in the Texas trial that that's not the case at all. He, he was making just as much money after he was deplatformed. Is, is that, that's right, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think there was an initial, we were tracking, I remember earlier on when I was writing about this for the New York Times, we were tracking some of the traction that he was, you know, losing after his platforming. And there was a dip in his in his audience as you could measure it. But the thing that's happened with these cases, and this is the sort of sad irony here, is that they have allowed him to portray himself aggrieved, victimized, persecuted, and in need of help from his followers. And so by playing that, and as you know, he is really a brilliant salesman. And so he has been able to drum up a lot of support, including out and out donations. Someone gave him $8 million in cryptocurrency, which he pocketed. Right. Which is now probably what, 50,000? <laughs> yeah, that money might be gone, but- um, At least he wasn't paid in pounds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, he's yeah. incredible. He's an incredible salesman. And it and it's comparatively recent, I I think. Somebody came to him, somebody who was related to the actor who played Superman came to him and said, I can make you a lot of money. Have you thought about selling supplements? And he and he did. And it seems that overnight his his fortune changed. He just made a fortune from selling these ridiculous supplements. And the other uh, person who had a big role in that was his father. So it emerged in court testimony as part of Alex Jones's divorce from his um, first wife, Kelly, was, um, you know, his dad got him into the supplements business. He had been investigating this 
and said, you know, we should do this and you can sell them on your show. And Kelly didn't want any part of it. She called it snake oil at the time. And um, it was partly they set up these LLCs to sell the supplements that are now very key to his bankruptcy proceedings in order to wall off that income during his divorce. But that was really what launched him into the, you know, his revenues are now in excess of $50 million a year and selling this, this stuff. And then, you know, the other gear that he sells and, and also just outright appealing for donations. But one thing that you've also reported on more recently that I think about all the time, John, is the role of his father in this. His dad is very much hand in glove in this bankruptcy proceeding too. You can see his hand in all of this, the setting up of Jones's empire. And I think about, you know, the reporting you did about that incident that occurred in high school and how his father helped bail him out. That has been his father's role for his entire life, wow. cleaning up after the elephants. I can, yeah. I can probably uh, tell that story uh, very quickly. Um, but, but before I do, let me say, so what's so interesting about, you know, a life post-deplatforming now is that, sure, you're not going to get passing traffic anymore. And the only way you're going to see what Alex Jones is up to on Twitter is when somebody who's against Alex, like Media Matters for America or one of those organizations will like broadcast a little clip of him being, you know, especially ridiculous or whatever. So, so he's lost the passing traffic. But what this, you know, what this has shown is that it hasn't affected his fortune at all, deplatforming, because, you know, your people stay with you. And that I just didn't really anticipate. He had a huge group of fans who just stayed there and just gave him a whole load of money. So extremely loyal. Yeah. yeah. And so I, that 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 was unexpected to me. So I thought I'd, I'd raise it. Yes, when Alex was a teenager, the the story he always tells about himself was he had to leave. He was he was he grew up in in a Dallas suburb called Rockwell, and he had to leave because he uncovered police corruption. And the police said, if you don't get out of town, uh, we're going to chase you out of town. Now, he, he's told that story for years, which I've got to say never sounded particularly plausible to me. But even so, that story <laughs> that he told, it wasn't really disputed until I was at the Republican. One drop in the ocean of implausibility <laughs> that is Alex Jones. <laughs> he had, like, the cops were selling coke at teenage parties and, you know, they pushed him up against the wall and said, if you don't get out of town, you know, you're going to regret it. Anyway, um, when I was at the Republican convention, I, I started talking to this sweet guy called Josh, who was Alex's cameraman and clearly was having a crisis of conscience and didn't want to be Alex's cameraman anymore. And he told me a different story, which was that the real reason why Alex moved from Dallas to, to Austin was because he was a bully. And he was like the biggest bully at the high school, Rockwell High School. And eventually, you know, and bully to the extent that he, um, you know, he almost killed people. And... Eventually, the other kids couldn't, you know, handle it anymore. So they lured him to a party in a barn, and it was a trap. And they beat him within an inch of his life. And that's why his father, you know, that's why they moved out of, of Austin. But so I went to Dallas to try and figure out what was true. And I met a kid, uh, or a man now, who Alex had beaten almost to death. He uh, he got brain damage as a result of this beating. It was over a girl. Alex just went nuts and was like, you know, had him on the floor and was like very violent assault. And yeah, the reason why Alex got away with it was because his father went to this kid's father. His name was Bubba. Went to Bubba's father and said, look, I'll pay for the medical bills. I'll pay for it all. Just don't press charges. And and 
that's what happened. Oh, he also gave, Alex's father also gave Bubba's father a book about why people shouldn't sue people. I thought that was very uh, Yeah, uh, thanks yeah. for the instruction. I know. So, yeah, then years later, and I know that Alex's father was a member of the John Birch Society. Is that, is that correct? He was, um, yeah. He, I mean, he speaks about, and, you know, I think you've written about this, John. He speaks about how none dare call it conspiracy by um, Gary Allen was sort of his early Bible. And he found it on his father's bookshelf. And Gary Allen was a, a hero among the Birchers. And he was a kind of pioneer of that idea that globalists are driving individual nations, foreign policy and economic policy, et cetera. Right, right. So the big question in all of this that people always ask me, and I'm sure they always ask you, is does Alex believe what he's saying or not? So... My favorite answer to that question um, comes from Josh Owens, who told you that story about Alex's um, high school um, misadventures, to put it mildly. He says, it doesn't matter if he believes it or not. What matters is that his audience believes it. And he's such a Pied Piper to his audience that his call to let's go out to Sandy Hook, we need to investigate this. We need to look into this use your powers of deduction. That is a call to action that has proven compelling to people who have gone out and tormented the Sandy Hook families. In the very beginning, I think because he is a suspicious type person and he's conspiracy minded, I think he did question the narrative. I think he jumped on and the guys from the podcast Knowledge Fight have analyzed his first show um, where within hours of Sandy Hook, he was calling it a false flag and a government pretext for gun control. I think he was sort of his audience. He took call after call where people were saying, Alex, tell us this is a conspiracy, basically, and tell us, you know, what really happened. And I think at that point, he just saw which way the wind was blowing. And um, and he went in that direction. And then he saw how much traction sort of amateur videos calling Sandy Hook a hoax were getting online. And then he started, you know, clout chasing. So if he believed that it, there was something wrong with the original story, I think it was fleeting. I think after that, the motivation to be at the center of attention and to make a profit from this was what took over. Thank you, Elizabeth. That was Elizabeth Williamson, the author of Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, which is available now. I've been John Ronson, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. 
Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.